0: Most gracious God, we've come uh, desiring to know you and to know your holiness and your goodness, your love. Father, I do pray that you would be with us this morning as we worship. Be with us in our Sunday school class as we get to know you. Help us to understand your grace and to find our comfort and our rest in there. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, I'm going to read uh, Job 42, 1 to 17. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that starting on page 446. We're going to conclude our series on the book of Job this morning. It's been a quick, quick little run, but I hope it's been encouraging. Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temnite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up burnt offerings for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayers. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days." Well, as I said, we're bringing our study of Job to an end. And last time, uh, two weeks ago, we saw uh, Job's interview with, with God. Um, and we focused on uh, Job's sin during his trial, uh, during his suffering, how he had demanded an explanation from God. Job believed that God had been unfair to him, and he wanted God Uh, to hear his complaints and he wanted to ask God just what he was thinking and allowing all these trials to come upon him. And so while Job had the opportunity to ask just those questions, he, he never actually took the opportunity because God spoke first and humbled Job by challenging Job's wisdom, Job's understanding of things, should the creation demand an answer from the creator uh he asked job if he's able to to really fight his own battles is he able to conquer the great enemy satan the one who actually asked to sift him uh because that's what it would take if job went his own way without god that's what would be required he would have to be the one to conquer the great enemy And so today we're going to see Job's response, and it's a response of repentance. And and following that repentance, we're going to see his restoration by grace. And, And so we might just summarize this last chapter, this last section, with this. Biblical wisdom teaches us that repentance is the road to grace and life. Biblical wisdom teaches us that repentance is the road to grace and to life. So that's what we want to look at. Uh, Today, Now, as we begin to look at Job's repentance, it is clear, it's important to be clear on which sins Job is repenting for. Why is this important? What's at stake? Why do we want to be clear, not just that Job is repenting, but for which sins he's repenting? Okay. Good. Right. Part of good repentance is being specific for which sins you're repenting for. This is not repentance. Sorry about earlier. <laughs> yeah. Far too often from our own lips, right? Yeah, that's not repentance. Um, part of good repentance is being specific, but there's something else too at stake here. What's the big debate in the book of Job between he and his friends? Right, that Job has done something wrong and what? That's right. Remember, his three friends have argued that all of Job's suffering is for some sin or sins that he has done that he has failed to repent. And so the question is, as Job repents, is he repenting for those sins? Is he, in other words, are, are his three friends being vindicated here? See, it was your sin that brought all this calamity upon you, right? What has Job been arguing? Right, I, I've got no secret sin. There's nothing that I haven't repented for and haven't addressed and offered a sacrifice for. There's nothing I'm hiding and holding on to. That's not, if I knew it, you know, right? What's at stake here is understanding who was right. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. By the way, great names if you're looking for, you know, names for your sons. Uh Is Job confessing for sins he did before the trial or since it began? That's a big difference. Elihu, on the other hand, has accused Job... Elihu, that's another great name, right? Uh, uh, Elihu accused Job not of sins before the trial, but sins since the trial began. His response to the trials have been sinful. That's the difference. Now, with whom does God agree? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, <laughs> or Elihu? Yeah, God agrees with Elihu. Um, and this is now echoed in Job's rep- repentance. He quotes, he quotes God back to himself. You know, you said, you know, uh, who is the creation to answer to the creator, right? Yeah. Um, In verses 3 and 4, Job shows that his sins that he's now confessing for are the sins he's committed since the trials began. It wasn't sin that brought these trials on, but his response to the trials was sinful. And that demonstrates that, that the three friends were wrong. And it destroys the theory that, that personal suffering is, is always a direct cor- corollary to, to personal sin. That's it, not why. Job's not finally saying, okay, okay, I know there was all these sins I did and I brought this suffering on. I give, I'll confess, and I'll repent. That's not what he's saying. But look at what he does before he confesses. Look at verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job surrenders, and he even praises God. You are right in your ways. And, and this is actually what Elihu told him to do back in chapter 36. We, we had to skip that because of time. But Elihu told Job in chapter 36 this, he said, Remember to extol God's work, of which men have sung. Remember to praise God's works. They are good. And here Job's doing it. He, he was finding fault with what God had done and God's will. And now he's, he's surrendering to it. But we, and we don't want to miss what, what Job confesses in verse, verse 5. Now my eyes see you. <laughs> Any thoughts on why this might be significant in the book of Job? Uh, I think there's a couple things that this is kind of echoing back to if you kind of remember No, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he asked for complete blindness, right? Yeah, absolutely. His and the world's, right? Yeah, if only. Good, that's good. I hadn't thought about that. I like that. There's a very famous quote in the book of of Job. Yet with my eyes, I shall see my Redeemer, right? Early on in the midst of it, and, and, and a lot of implications are in context. He's actually talking about, in the life to come. But now he's done what he said he would. Good, that's good. But there's something else. What's he essentially have been accusing God of throughout all of this? Um, obviously, doing unkindness. But um, does he think God's been with him or that he's been abandoned? Dealing falsely, yeah. Um, yeah, there's this idea that, you know, hey, if only I could see God and talk to him, then we could work this out. But he's not here. He's not answering my calls. <laughs> he's not returning my texts. He's he's totally absent. Um, he has, he's, I thought we were friends. and And now, like everybody else, because all of Job's earthly friends abandoned him, right? Except the ones who come to afflict him. And he's basically saying, God's done the same. Is there kind of a parallel with Satan's first attack in the Garden of Eden, where if you pull back all the, the covers, he's attacking God's terror? Absolutely. And Job doesn't accuse God like Satan said he would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and he he won't just come right out and curse God and die, which his wife so kindly suggested he do. Uh, But the questions abound, the veiled accusations, uh, and and there's that insinuation, you know, uh, God has abandoned me, and if he hasn't abandoned me, maybe I wish he would. (laughs) Because if this is what his presence in my life is like, I'm okay, I'm okay without it. Um. The idea is he he's saying I wished I I, I could get an a, a um what's an audience with the Lord, but I can't. And now he's saying, "Okay. The veil's been pulled back. I have seen who God is. I got my audience. I now understand." and and uh he's saying there's there's a sense here in which he's kind of saying his his knowledge is no longer academic but experiential i i get it and and, that, and the climax of this first section is found in verse 6 because as he finally sees the lord for who he is and his ways for what they are he he offers praise he confesses his foolishness and he confesses god's greatness he says in verse 6 I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. The Lord, you are good. I am sinful and I am sorry. That's unqualified. He doesn't offer excuses. He doesn't hedge his repentance. Job does not say, hey Lord, sorry about earlier. He confesses that what he did was wrong and he mourns it. Dust and ashes, that's like, that's like funeral attire. He's grieving his, his past actions. It repulses him. He says, I despise myself. Not just I despise my sin, but I despise myself for doing those. You remember our membership vows? I abhor and humble myself, right? It comes almost straight out of Job's repentance here. And notice that Job has... Not been healed or restored yet when he repents. He repents still in the midst of his suffering. He he he's repented and he's clung to God without anything in return. Now, why is that important? Well, again, it proves Satan wrong. That's that's exactly right. Because what did Satan say at the beginning? You hedged him in. Right. Does Job follow you for nothing? Yeah, exactly. And had the Lord restored Job first and then Job said, okay, I'm sorry, what would the argument have been? See? And yet here, Job does exactly what Satan said he wanted to do. That he would follow the Lord with nothing in return. And so God has proven something to Satan. He's proven that he can produce an heir. He can produce followers by grace. And that's the climax of of the conflict in the book of Job. Because remember, the book of Job isn't ultimately about a conflict between God and Job. It's between God and Satan. And Job doesn't even know this. He's being pulled into a much greater conflict. But but Satan's essentially saying, look, you had sinless Adam in the garden and you failed. Do you think you're going to do a better job with, with sinful Job without, if you don't bribe him? And God says, that's exactly what I think. I can do more by my grace than a sinless person can do through the law. And that's the wisdom that Job is learning to, to, to see, not according to his circumstances, but according to the word of God. God has spoken and he said, that makes more sense than, than what I was saying, thinking through my circumstances. The fear of God is not contrary to the grace of God. Uh, it's, it's truly understanding who God is that makes Job appreciate and cling and understand and receive God's grace. So here's a beautiful picture about how, how God's holiness and his majesty lead to a healthy fear that, that lead us to cling to him and take comfort in him. Now we want to move on to verses 7-17 through 17 in the restoration of Job. And as we do, uh, it would have been helpful if we had read chapter 29. But Job essentially in chapter 29 complained of three things. Uh that he that had been taken from him, he says, you know, God's friendship has been taken from him. He's been abandoned by God. He says, uh, his possessions have been stripped from him. He's been uh, rendered poor, and the respect of his fellow men has been re- taken from him. He says, I used to go in, into the town square, and people would come running to me, wanting my wisdom, and they they wanted my friendship. And now I walk into town, and everybody looks the other way, and like I didn't see Job, you know, and they want to move on, and, and he says. All of these things have been stripped from me. Now the first of those has already been answered, right? We've, we see that God hasn't abandoned him. That God was with him all the way. That God had, had his plans to actually make Job stronger, more godly, and more humble through all of this. That God was never far off. He was never withdrawn. That he was in the midst of the valley of death with Job from the beginning, and so I don't know that it would be right to say that, that God's friendship is restored because it was never taken away, but at least Job's understanding of God's friendship has been restored. And maybe that's the reason why it's not really addressed too much here. What, what, what uh, verses 7 and following address is the restoration of those two other things. Um. The first uh, that we see is the honor of his friends. Remember, he says, I used to be honored, and now I, I'm not. Uh, we see that honor restored most clearly in, in Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Because God turns to them, and he rebukes them. He says, you, you claim to be speaking in my name. You, you, you claim to be rebuking Job, but you were speaking folly, <laughs> foolishness. And then he says, Now, if you want me to forgive you, what do they have to do? This is so God. Job has back, like, a yeah. Yeah, if you guys want forgiveness, go ask Job to intercede on your behalf and I will listen. They obey. And they go to Job. And he prays for them. And that's an act of submission. It's an act of respect. It's an act of honor. And so Job has been restored to his place of prominence. And his aid is once again sought. What do you notice about the restoration of Job's wealth in verses 10 to 17? Okay, reverse order of how it was taken. Okay, very, uh, very Hebrew. We, we're going to walk in and we're going to walk out. Right, that, uh, that, that kind of pattern. Good. but mm-hmm. um, just because he's good himself. Yeah, God restores Job out of his kindness and grace, not because of Job's goodness, and he's earned it, right? It's not a if this, been. that. Yeah, yeah, good. Good, what else do you notice? Verse 10, it says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job What? Hmm. Twice as much, right? And then he demonstrates this in verses twelve to sixteen. In chapter one, we we were told that he possessed seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred female donkeys, and many servants. More than any, uh, so that uh, this man um, was was more wealthy than any other. Now, now we're told that he has what? 14,000 sheep, where he had 7,000, 6,000 camels, where he had three, 1,000 yoke of oxen, where he had 500, and 1,000 female donkeys, where he had 500. When when it, when, when it says that God restored his fortune to him twice as much, he means like to the number, right? It's not metaphorical, it's not literary. He's like, oh, he's twice as blessed as he was before. It really means like, When you do inventory, it's doubled. We even see that possibly in his life. Who who remembers what the Psalms say about the life of a man? The years of our life are 70, or if by strength, maybe 80. And then they're soon gone and we fly away. What's two times 70? 140. (laughs) And Job lived another 140 years. Even the length of his days seems to be doubled, doesn't it? Right? The Lord is blessing Job double. For everything he took away, he's repaying double. For everything he allowed to be taken away. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I know people in their 50s whose kids are out of their home, butchy. Yeah, but they had children much later in <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's pop. I mean, so we don't know. He could have been in his 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s when this and then and then still lived another long period of time. Absolutely. What wasn't doubled? Sons and daughters. What do you guys think about that? First, maybe before I ask you that question, what is the correlation to the sons and daughters he lost at the beginning? What did he have at the beginning? Seven sons and three daughters. daughters. And what does he have after the trial? (laughs) <laughs> we'll get there, <laughs> stinker. <laughs> but he has another seven sons and another three daughters, exactly the same count as before. I what were you going to say? He's still mourn for the ones that died of the seven sons and the three daughters who died of originally of the union of Job. I mean, that that would have had to been there. Well, of course. Yeah. Camels, yeah. donkeys, oxen. I mean, I'm hungry, but... My children, I grieve. I uh, Last week at a wedding, I, I ran into an old friend. They had um, lost a child in infancy. And uh, it's been years, and yet still heavy on his heart. Um, I was thinking about this passage. Uh, Yeah, it doesn't say anything about her. Yeah. So what do you guys think about that? Doubled the camels, doubled the oxen, doubled the donkeys. But he doubled the children. <laughs> but he doubled it. Why? Because he already had those children. Mm. Just because they weren't living didn't mean he didn't have them. Yeah. See that's That's what people wrestle with here because on one hand you sit there and you say, well, the children are the most important. Why aren't they doubled? Right? And yet you can't help but see the correlation. Seven sons, seven sons. Three daughters, three daughters. You can't help. It's not like, and he had more children. Or he had seven daughters and three sons. or something. It, it's exactly to what he lost in chapter one. And, and, then, and then you say, well, why not? And some people say, well, you can't replace children. Well, that's true. That's true. You can't. But he... Hasn't really lost them. But he there you go. David said that, my son's dead, I will go yeah, he won't come to me, but I will go to him. So here's the question. In heaven, how many camels does Job have? Zero. In heaven, how many oxen does Job have? Zero. In heaven, how many, uh, I forget which animals I've already done, but you get the point, right? But in heaven, how many sons does Job have? Fourteen. And in heaven, how many daughters does Job have? Six. Job, if he has the eyes of faith, will see that his children have been doubled. If he doesn't see as this world sees, but if he sees as the Lord has taught him to see, he will realize That his children have been doubled, but he will not experience that fully until the resurrection. And so, yeah, Dave, you're right. He's got 14 sons and he's got six daughters. Um, The resurrection shows itself in the book of Job in the fact that the number of children on earth is not doubled, but in heaven is. And that's meant to be a comfort. For, for people like my friend who lost a child in infancy and, and they every day put three kids to bed and yet in heaven they will know their fourth. And this is a comfort to parents who have lost children in miscarriages. The book of Job is meant to drive home to us that our hope is not tied to what we can see in this life. But in the resurrection to come. And all of this comes not because Job was strong, not because Job was perfectly righteous, but because God was gracious. And so I want to end where we began um, this series. At the beginning I said this this book isn't ultimately so much about Job as it is about this conflict between God and serpent. And what God said in Genesis 3.15, I will produce a seed. I will produce heirs for myself through the woman. And and Satan comes and says, can you really do that without buying their loyalty? Can you do that without bribery? Can you do it on your goodness alone? And God's answer is, I can do more through my grace than even a perfect, sinless individual can do through his own strength. And so as Job clings to God without bribery, without even understanding this, this conflict going on all around him, he becomes the demonstration that God can indeed save for himself a people no matter what befalls them. Why should that be a comfort to us? Going back to where we started with, with the book of Job and, and, and how we tend to read it. How, again, how do we tend to read the book of Job? Be, right, between God and Job. And then whom, to whom do we compare ourselves? Job. And what do we all think? I don't want that, I don't want that because if it came, I don't think... I could stay faithful. I'm afraid that if God were to try me that severely, I would curse him. That I would fail. And so we start to think, I, I'm nothing like Job. I'm not as strong as Job. And we tend to think, I really hope my trials don't get that hard because I think I'd fall away. We tend to think of Job as this superhuman superhero of faith. And that's not what the book is about. Job fails not before it starts, but a lot afterwards. But God doesn't let him go. In other words, the book of Job isn't meant to quake, make us quake in the shadow of some impenetrable superhero of the faith to whom we can't identify but it, it, it's meant to give us a, a very real look at the pains and anguish of a fa- fellow pilgrim and even his failures. And, and in the midst of that, to see the supernatural grace of God that holds on to that pilgrim in the midst of his struggles. And so it's, it's really meant to assure you that if God can preserve Job through that, he can preserve you through anything. It's meant to drive you to God's power, not your own. He, and not only that, but he can bring you onto the other side of your trial, more holy, more self-aware, and more dependent upon God than you started. And it shows you that, that your current suffering is, is no sign of um, that you don't belong to God, it's a proof that, that blessings often come through trials. And so the book of Job is the story of God's grace, a rich and beautiful and triumphant grace. Um, let me close with two thoughts. The first is this. When God's grace is at work, suffering must give way to restoration. Restoration. This book is is heavy and it's hard, but it does not end in darkness. And the ashes don't have the final word. Uh, And it's to remind us of the way of wisdom, that even when we don't understand what God's doing, even when we don't understand why we are suffering, we can understand the character of God and know that His ways um, are, are such that He always gives life to those who trust in Him. Uh, This is what our Lord's brother meant in the book of James when he said, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's what you're meant to learn from him, that the Lord is merciful and compassionate. One more reflection. What becomes of Job's three friends? They're restored. restored. God tells us that the one they afflicted must now intercede for them if they are to have any hope. And so through Job's sufferings, he actually becomes the vehicle of their salvation. Through his suffering, he becomes the only one who can intercede for them. See, earthly wisdom would tell you nothing good can come of uh, of suffering. Biblical wisdom tells us that it can bring salvation. Where am I going with this? Someone else acted as a priest, what? Yeah. How often... See. See, the problem is, we, we, we tend to sit there and go, am I like Job or whatever? And yet, really, who are we like? Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, right? We, we accuse the innocent one of all sorts of things. And then on the last day, the Lord says, if he will intercede for you, you will be restored. We find our hope not in Our strength, but we find our hope in the one who has suffered and interceded on our behalf. We find hope in Jesus Christ and His righteousness, and His strength, and His grace. And so, that's our great comfort: is that Jesus has interceded for us. And so, even as we see, you know, the the temptation in passages like this is always to look at the one who uh, is being. Um, rude and obstinate, and just judge them. But usually that's the one the Lord wants you to identify with. How many times do we speak with the folly of Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz? How often do we accuse where no accusation should be made? And and the more we identify and say, yeah, but I've done that. If if only, if at the end they just ended up in, in, in judgment, that would be the real terror of this book. And yet the very one they accused becomes their salvation. And I think that's a beautiful picture for us to remember in the midst of our sins and struggles and folly. Um, so that's a, a five-week mad dash through the book of Job. Uh, it's a beautiful, um, beautiful book. I um, I hope you've been encouraged uh, going back through it. Uh, we do have a couple minutes so if there's any questions or thoughts before we before I close in prayer. Well, it's. And Sunday school teachers, when they, they hear no questions, they, they like to believe, oh man, must be so clear. Every question's been answered. But typically it means you've been so confusing that no one can actually form a question. So uh, I'll, I'll take the first uh, in hopes, but let's pray. Our gracious God, we, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the assurance that even in our weakness and our confusion and our folly, that you preserve us And you make us more holy through our trials. And we thank you that your son suffered and interceded on our behalf. That he did not offer seven bulls but himself to bring us peace. And Father, we thank you for the resurrection. That one day, all who belong to you and have been stripped away from us shall be restored. And we shall see you face to face and delight in your presence for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.